This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. It is Wednesday, July 21st, 2010. This is episode 20, or episode 34, excuse me. And once again, I am Paul Fox, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi, everybody. How's it going, Kevin? Oh, I'm being a little mad. A little tropical storm called Chentu. Yeah, we got a we've got a uh, tropical warning out there. What are we at? Uh, warning number three right now, I think. Right. And uh, uh, which means uh, the weather will be miserable, but you still have to go to work. Well, Gio, we were just watching TV, and Gio came in and said they had said something about raising it to number eight within the next two hours, possibly. But I, you know, looking at the track, it looks like it's going to completely miss us. So I don't know why they do that. But I know it's based, so it has something to do with the actual distance between the storm and Hong Kong, I think. So mm-hmm. what, what I see is that this is the second storm in a row in two weeks um, that it's decided to take a big turn and go to Hainan Island. So as we saw on Twitter this afternoon, me and my friend Marco Spamberg, we were wondering what was so attractive about Hainan Island and, and tropical storms. Mm. I'm thinking there's probably some, uh, you know, secret Communist Party uh, electronic device that they're using to try and attract storms. And they'll <laughs> use this as a weapon of mass destruction in the future. <laughs> and it's been created by some mad scientist somewhere. And next week I get arrested in China. <laughs> Well, we are here to talk about uh, what do we talk about on this show? Uh, we talk about um, a couple of movies and uh, yeah, we like talk that. about movies from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of other stuff in between. Um, so, as we get into this week's show, let's start off with some news. All right, we got a couple of news stories for East Screen this week. Um, Kevin, what are you going to start us off with? Um, sorry, I'm not being really timely the news. Um, I just picked up um, at this just of a friend of the podcast, Tim Young. I picked up a copy of the Muse magazine. Um, full disclosure, I've written a couple of articles for Muse magazine, uh, and I really appreciate the, the opportunities they gave me. But um, you know what they did is what they did. Um, what they did is that they have a yearly or this year they have a contest called the Next Big Thing, where they name some of the um, sort of the big, most, I guess, cultural people of the most potential in the future. And uh, one of the two big winners this year is Christine Toe, the writer of films, masterpieces like uh, Murderer and True Legend. Um, I don't have the magazine with me right now. It's in the office because uh, Kozo uh, gave it to Kozo and everyone else in the office to read it. But uh, essentially it, it says that it, it implies the position that it takes is that uh, Toe was um, unfairly uh, lambasted for for the, the murderer. Um, that she's actually a really talented writer, as proven by her work in uh, Fearless and Secret and uh, Jiang Hu. And I'm wondering what kind of weird planet is that editor from? Um, Christine Toe, I think, is an okay writer. She's a fine commercial writer. Uh, I enjoyed Fearless. I was fine with Secret, her writing at least. Um, 
And even True Legend, to a degree, is fine until the last half hour. Um, but, well, I mean, the less said about murder, the better. But to name Christine Ho the next big thing, I mean, where does um, the magazine see the potential in her? Um, I think that she is seems to be very self-indulgent. Uh, I think that she um, is very much... Um, too much into her themes. Uh, a typical, very typical, lot of film school writer, um, <clears throat> like me, um, who, who who is too way too much focused on her theme and forget to write logical things. Um, Paul, you see murder. You, I think you've seen all of Christine Toe's yeah. films. Um, what do you think about this next big thing? Well, let, let me throw out a bit of full disclosure too. Um, she is an alumni of the college and the school that I studied at. Um, although we were sort of there at the same time, uh, she was, I believe she was in the undergraduate program and I was in the graduate program. So our paths never really crossed, but she was all the buzz and talk about town because she had been, basically she, uh, had written Jung who as part of her, you know, uh, research project, I guess. And it had caught the ten or some of her writing had caught the, the eye of, uh, Patrick Tam who was the, one of the visiting professors on staff there. And I guess through him, she got introduced to Eric Zhang and some other people who ended up producing the film. Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to discredit her talent at all because apparently, you know, she's continued to work in Hong Kong cinema as a scriptwriter, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, there, I know plenty of people who've attempted to work in this in that field, and you know the the money's not really there. So trying to make a career out of that is a very daunting task. Um, a lot of times, people write stuff and they get their stuff ripped off basically by producers or directors, and never really see a dime for it. You can find stories like this out and about. You know, e even with some some big people. I mean, I've heard. I've heard stories from, say, like Pang Ho Chung, who talked about some of his experience as a as a scriptwriter, and how, some of the difficulties in trying to pursue that, you know, profession. So I don't really, I I don't want to get into, you know, my feelings on is she talented or not. The fact of the matter is she keeps working, so somebody somewhere thinks she's she's got the writing chops to to keep doing stuff. Now. Whether she's the next big thing or not, I mean, how many scriptwriters can you name from Hong Kong cinema that have ever been a big thing? Um, I think the one that the only one that we can ever name is Ivy Ho, who is known as the only scriptwriter in the Hong Kong industry. I'm not sure if that's still the case. Who can get a million dollars per script yeah. after um, Carmat's almost a love story? But you're right. Yeah, no. I mean, no I, other I, I had a friend who was. Uh, going to take a class locally with the guy who had um, written the script for Chinese Ghost Story, um, you know, and that was that was a wildly successful film, spawned off a couple of series, and here here is this scriptwriter. He's he's you know teaching evening classes on scriptwriting because he's not he wasn't able to you know keep working. Um, writing scripts because it's such a daunting and, and challenging industry. And when you look at people, the people who've really been successful, um, and I'm thinking of people like Anne Hoy or um, 
uh, Sylvia Chung, they're usually taking up other roles. They're not simply a, a writer. They're, work, they're often working as a producer or in a directorial role as well, and they may bring on other writers to work with them. Um, so, you know, it, it's fine. I think that the magazine wants to focus on her. To say she's the next big thing, I don't know if I'd necessarily agree with that because, again, I, I think that's a, that's a label that just doesn't fit with a scriptwriter. If you want to talk about a director, possibly... Um, okay, or an actor, yeah, I could see it, but a writer, not so much. I think I think that writing's a different field, and writing, you know, one script can make or break you at any given time, regardless of how successful you are, and you may never work again if you produce a big enough bomb. So, yeah, I I, I just I I don't like the, the idea of that title or or that award being given, and. You know, how many, you listed off, she's got a number of films already, so it's not like she's really, you know, a new kid on the block. Definitely not. She's been around for five years. Um, some of her films are big Pan-Asian hits. And, you know, and you're right, Bob, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice that a writer could get this kind of recognition, but for, you know, if she gotten it for maybe Secret, she got gotten it for Jiang Hu, she got gotten it for... You know, woman writing martial arts films, okay, um, and, and making it, you know, that's fine. But for a film like Murder, that is, you know, and, and to suggest that it is, it was unfairly lambasted for what it did, um, I don't know. I mean, Roger Ebert wrote this week that, you know, film criticism is a very subjective thing, but sometimes there are, are opinions on the movies that essentially are facts. Like if you say... If you say something like, um, I don't know, Flirting Scholar 2 is better than Kung Fu, uh, I'm sorry, uh, better than Shaolin Soccer, you know, I, was, I, would, I wouldn't say that's your opinion, I would say you're wrong. You know, it, it's, it, it's kind of, it kind of uh, baffles me because um, the, met, the magazine's editor has always had kind of strange um, stance on Hong Kong cinema. He very much looks down on what we consider commercial Hong Kong cinema, even the stuff that we enjoy. Um, he has completely given up Johnny Toe. Uh, he has essentially, and, and suddenly he comes out and says he likes murder. It, it's very interesting the stance that this this so so called cultural elite magazine is, is taking. All right, well, let's move on to some other news. So, what's our next story up, Kevin? Okay. Um. Again, not a very timely news. Is some um, this from Fimbus Asia? I'm sorry, I'm eating a, a grape, so I better finish chewing. Okay, this is from um, July seventh. A uh, story on Fimbus Asia about um, an economic deal um, signed between Taiwan and China that will cut tariffs on both sides um, on pro uh, importing products from the from each other. Now, um, there's nothing specific about. Importing of entertainment products uh, such as films, but um, it does raise a interesting question because um, China and Hong Kong is a very similar that essentially allows Hong Kong films to um, be made as co-productions of China and to go around the the, the foreign film quota that uh, China has. So the question I want to raise is that if, do you think if this deal goes through, um, will Taiwanese cinema, which has been going under um, kind of a slump for the last, well, I don't know, a couple of decades, uh, whether go to Hong Kong way, whether you see a revival of Taiwanese cinema because of this opened China market, and how would that 
affect the quality of Taiwanese film? Would it be like Hong Kong, where Taiwanese films sort of lose their edge to appease the Chinese censors? Yeah, I think that's a that that was the first question that popped in my mind as I was、um, looking over this. Is that okay? You've you've opened up the gates here, and you're going to allow a lot more content in, but then that content is ultimately going to be under the subjective gaze of the censorship bureau, and it's going to have to kowtow to you know their whatever their standards are. So if you've made the Taiwanese version of Infernal Affairs. Um, you know, as Hong Kong did, you've got to change the ending to where the the villain、uh, gets captured or gets killed, even though that may not have been the original ending's intent.、Um, I mean, I I think economically it's probably good news for Taiwan cinema,、mm-hmm. um, which doesn't seem to have been doing as strongly、um, as it's done in the past. So you know, hopefully we'll see a lot more work. And what one of the things that I I do think about is that will a number of、uh, Hong Kong actors or Hong Kong crews ultimately be able to pick up extra work because of this? You know, as in sort of、uh, joint productions where they bring on, you know, some some talent or some people from Hong Kong over to Taiwan,、um, which was sort of a very common the the reverse of that was a very common practice、um, in previous years. So maybe we'll start to see something like that come out of this. I, I think on a personal comfort level, I think、uh, stars and crew. I think they would much rather work in Taiwan than say in China. I mean, Taiwan has been、um, it's somewhere they're familiar, more familiar with. There's somewhere they're more, I guess, they might feel more free. Somewhere they 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 can sort of enjoy what they have in Hong Kong a little more than say、um, somewhere in the backwoods of China.、Um, I think this would be some kind of indirect positive effects on the Hong Kong film industry in that. Yeah, you're right.、Uh, a lot of、um, Hong Kong film crews and film actors can try their hand in, in Taiwanese cinema. All right,、uh, our last story for East Screen this week、uh, is a little story coming from Film Biz Asia, and that is that、uh, Gong Li has joined the cast of the Asian version of What Women Want.、Um, she'll be starring opposite Andy Lau. The film is to be directed by Chen Dameng. So. Did you ever see the original What Women Want, Kevin? Yeah, but you know it's one of those films where you watch it and then you don't really remember it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just, you know, I'm hoping this film, even though it's going to be a remake and it's going to be in Chinese, I'm hoping it doesn't carry the Mel Gibson curse. You know, because、hmm. the the one thing I don't want to see is I don't want to see our beloved Andy become the next Mel Gibson. You know, and go off down down. You know, in Central. Ranting about、uh, you know、uh, people you know、uh, migrant workers or or re- religious groups or anything in general. Yeah, I, I hate to hear Andy Lau call his call his wife and 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 say that she likes white people or something. <laughs> that would be bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm excited to see this film. I don't think the two of them have paired off before.、Um, no, I trying, don't think so.、You're、trying、right. to think of my my Andy Lau Andy Lau filmography off the top of my head, and I think this will be the first time. That they've、um, they've been a couple, and it's sort of a break from the traditional、uh, Andy Sammy pairings that we've gotten over the years.、Uh, what do you think? Do you think they'll work together? Do you think they'll have some chemistry? Oh, I think you. I, I look forward to it a lot. It's time that Andy Lau works, or well, I guess it's time that Andy Lau gets paired with a, a one an actress that's similar to his age, and and an actress that is 
uh, that would kind of have that star power. Yeah. Um, this is, I think it'll be really interesting. Uh, it's a really good choice to have Gong Li, who is essentially like the queen, I guess the queen of, of modern Chinese cinema, um, to play this big role. I, I'm just a little afraid that Gong, uh, Andy might not be able to handle Gong Li. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of an Andy fan, so I, th- I think he can do it. Um, but you're right. I mean, one of the things that's kind of disappointed me in movies that he's done in the past few years has been the choice of leading ladies. I mean, you, you, you know, he was um, with uh, Charlene at one point. Um, I, I, you know, Future X Cops wasn't too bad. He had um, uh, Fon Bingbing and uh, Barbie Sue. Barbie, yeah. And that, that was okay. But yeah, I, I do think it's time that he's matured up a little bit and, and started playing against actresses um, who look a bit closer to his age. And I mean, don't get me wrong, Gong Li still looks great. Um, so I'm again. I think that this is something I'll definitely be looking forward to seeing when it comes out. And, and is this uh, Gong Li's first uh, comedic role since? Gosh, I can't remember since. I can't. I, I don't dare to say since *Flirting Scholar*. Uh, I mean, she's played really serious role recently. I mean, the uh, last year was in yeah, *Curse of Golden Flower*, I, *Shanghai*. I don't uh, think I can't think of anything she's done comedic-wise. Um. Since uh, Flirting Scholar, unless you you know consider uh, the the Hannibal movie, the Hannibal prequel is a comedy, <laughs> um, or maybe Miami Vice. I don't know. Hey, I like Miami Vice. All right, no, no, I, no. I, I'm looking at this uh, filmography. I believe this might be her first comedy yeah. since uh, Flirting Scholar one. Yeah, she she's not she's not done a whole lot, but um, she was really good in Flirting Scholar, so I think she'll be fine here. All right, it's time to move on to our East Screen films for this week. Um, so we're going to take a step back first to try and play a little bit more catch-up on some of the films that have come out that we've missed talking about. The first film we're going to talk about this week is the Derek E. film Triple Tap, which is the sequel to the film uh, Double Tap, which was uh, starring uh, Alex Fong and Leslie Chung. So I haven't had a chance to see this film yet, so I'm going to turn it over to Kevin, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the story and his thoughts on it. Sure thing. Um, Triple Tap is kind of a third film uh, of the Alex Fong trilogy, probably the only time he ever got to play like a major character more than once. Um, as Paul said, it's a continuation of not only Double Tap, but also uh, One Night in Mongkok, where uh, he played the same character from Double Tap. Um, here, you could say it's... Um, and as the Chinese um, title also suggests that it's kind of a continuation of not only the character, but also a continuation of the theme and, and the idea that it sells, um, you know, guns in Hong Kong. Um, but that's kind of misleading uh, because the film is really a cerebral, kind of a talky, um, psychological thriller about uh, 
uh, a, a criminal or uh, someone who is forced, who is driven to to commit crime, and um, how this policeman played by Daniel Wu slowly gets into his head and breaks him. Um, so Louis Ku plays uh, a financial whiz. Um, he's kind of like a very talented, I guess, fund manager at a very big firm, um, but. Uh, his professional life is is great, but his private life is a mess because um he's uh sitting right between two women um her his boss played by Li Bingbing, who who loves him and will give him anything he wants essentially, but um only benefits him financially. And um the other end is uh Char uh, character played by Charlene, uh, a nurse who uh the Lewis Cook character really loves. Um, at the beginning of the film, he's uh he just when uh, we just won a gun, a gun shooting competition against uh, the Daniel Wu character, who is a cop, um, and then on the way back from the, the contest, he uh, runs into a roadside uh, armored car robbery uh, led by a gang, um, and essentially takes out his gun and and shoots the many uh, most of the um, robbers dead. So he's charged by the police. But um, he's let off because um, all the evidence point that he's he's just he just saved the he he caught the the robbers. But of course, as the plot continues, um, it reveals that Lewis Ku is actually hiding more than he seems. Um, so, you know, with a title like Triple Tap, uh, and and this um, Chinese title is I think the King of the King of Guns. Uh, you might think that gunfights and guns are a big, big thing to do with the film. Uh, that was actually um, that applies to Double Tap, where uh, Leslie Chern played another kind of gun, gun maniac or yeah, gun maniac who kind of goes crazy and commits crimes with his gun and and it becomes a dangerous criminal. And you think it, it will follow the same pattern? It kind of does in a way. Uh, it follows uh, Louis Ku's um, kind of psychological breakdown and how he turns into a criminal, but guns doesn't really play much much of a part in the film. It's only really in the two first two big action scenes. I mean, um, it's in the first uh, the competition scene and in the um, robbery scene. These happen in the first 20 minutes or 15 minutes or so. Um, and the rest of the film is kind of this talky, cerebral, psychological drama. And and it's interesting because Derek Yee, and I mentioned this on my Twitter, is that uh, Derek Yee has gone out and said that that is not really his own film. He really sees it as a commercial film. Uh, it's become a big hit in China. It kind of flopped in Hong Kong. Um, it made, I think it's only making $7 million, which is something that uh, not really that expected because last year uh, over her, I believe, made 15. So um, cover disappointment here, and the audience aren't really responding to it because of the issues I just talked about. But yet it's a big hit in China. So um, why? I mean, uh, one, um, I think the script has been kind of dumbed down. Um, and it takes about forty minutes for for Louis Ku's character to be cleared of the the crime that or the the shooting at the robbery. But in a, in a in normal Derek Yee film, this would take only about twenty minutes, and and the rest of the film would be these you know character details and really interesting stuff. But Derek Yee is kind of goes on autopilot of this and it takes um a really long time it's a it's two full hours long and the whole middle part is just really is talky and it, it, there's jump between the the daniel wu versus lewis cool uh psychological um battle of wits versus and then the, the whole uh, lewis cool love triangle 
And none, neither of it is really that engaging because the Daniel Wu character is just too righteous. He's just these, this really righteous cop. And uh, and Louis Koo, when you when you compare with Leslie Chun, there's really no comparison. Louis Koo just kind of wooden, especially when it's when he goes, you know, when he's really serious. And um, you know, no, I don't think it's it's a fault of his acting either. I think uh, Derek E and his scriptwriter just didn't really craft interesting characters. Now, as I said before, that Alex Wong character returns here. Uh, he has a kind of major supporting role as the mentor, the Yoda of the film, so to speak. And um, his, his presence at the beginning of the film was very welcome. He he brings a nice sense of continuity uh, to these to the to the series of films. But in the middle, when he gets really involved, the case even he kind of gets dragged down to this silly psychological. Um, thriller, this mess that Derek Yee has 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 concocted. Um, another welcome presence, uh, and this is surprising because this is surprise because I didn't see this in any of the publicity materials that Chapman Toe uh, is in a surprise uh, dramatic performance here, and um, I think he does fairly well here. Um, he doesn't really steal the film like he usually does. Uh, his role is. Um, very dramatic uh, and very serious, and um, he pulls it off fine. Um, and you know, it was good to see him in a in a finally dramatic role. Even though, um, as I mentioned earlier this week in my Twitter, he said in an interview that uh, doing dramatic acting in triple in a film like Triple Tap is like being a prostitute, and then Lamb straight knocks on your door. You know, you got a thing that you don't really want to do, but you do it anyway, like a professional. Uh, but he does fine here. Um, so, you know, these things don't really balance out. Either way, the film is still too long, still too talky, it's still too draggy, it's too dumbed down um, for, for the audience here. Um, also, the violence has been toned down because um, towards the end, there's a scene where a character, and this is in the trailer, so I'm not really ruining that much, one character goes on this kind of shooting rampage. Instead, I think in this, this, this China approved version, he's only... Turns out that he's only imagining it rather than really doing it. I think if, if Derek Yu was making this film on a Hong Kong term, um, kind of like a double tap, he would have just done it. Um, double tap again was very violent and it would never pass in China, even though um, even though you know the the ideologically it passes, uh, as in the bad guy loses and the good guys win. But the middle part is very very violent and and it's kind of a scary film. Um, and here is this kind of the gun. You never feel like the threat. Of the gun, you never really feel the. You never see. You never see the loose cool character threatening or scary, um, especially when 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 there are tons of plot holes and especially the violence toned down. Um, and that just doesn't help when you have a Hong Kong film that runs two full hours long. So triple tap. I wouldn't say it's a terrible film, but you know, on, on any on regular standard, but as a Derek E film, this definitely ranks as one of the worst Derek E films I've seen. All right. So if you're thinking about uh, Triple Tap, you might want to reconsider and watch Double Tap instead. <laughs> or, or One Night in Hong Kong. Yeah, One Night in Hong Kong. I, I didn't, I didn't yeah. know that was a sequel. I'm, I'm, I'm in a way, in a way. Just, just that one character. Um, but yeah, it's a much better Derek E film and a very much a Hong Kong Derek E film. Uh, up next, we've got another Hong Kong film to talk about. 
uh, one that's been three years plus in the making and the waiting and the releasing. And that is the Fantastic Water Babes. Now, normally I would attempt, because both Kevin and I have seen this, to give a synopsis of this film. Um, but I don't know what this film is about, so I'm going to throw it back at Kevin's court and let him do it. <laughs> you know, and of course, are these, are these plot descriptions, well. Uh, okay. All right, I'm going to give it a try here. Because um, I, I think I made sense of it. Maybe. Maybe. I'll try my best. Um, again, no characters' names. I'll try my best. Okay, so Fantastic Water Babes is the long-delayed um, Jeff Lau movie starring um, Miss um, Sexy Photo Skate herself, Jillian Chung. And um, Alex, uh, I was an Olympic swimmer, but I didn't really make it into the Olympics fong. And, and directed by Jeff Lau, who last made the masterpiece, um, Kung Fu Cyborg. Okay, no, uh, it was uh, just another Pandora's box. But he also made Kung Fu Cyborg, so that doesn't make, make it any better. Um, to, to be fair, I think, I think it was, it's only been two years since Sexy Photos Gate, right, Paul? Uh, I think it's been two years only. Maybe. Uh, it's, yeah. it, all, it all bleeds together. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So let's say. Okay. Even. Okay. Let's say three years work because let's say they shot it the summer before that. So yes, it is a film that has been shelved for three years, and it looks like they just left it on the shelf for the last three years and decided not to decide that it wasn't worth doing anything with it. Um, it stars uh Jillian as okay. This character I remember because her name is Jillian, um, a, a girl who lives on um the island of Chen Chao. Uh, if you don't know much about Hong Kong geography. Chen Chao is one of the few offshore islands. Um, in fact, I think it's the most populated offshore island that is not connected to Hong Kong via a roadway uh, because Lantau Island is. Uh, that's where the airport is. So um, it, it's kind of this isolated community. Um, and I'm trying to treat this place with respect because a mutual friend lives there. So uh, anyway, I, I so the, the film takes place on Chen Chao and Jillian uh, and her friends, they live on Chen Chao, and she's, uh, Jillian is kind of respected because um, her parents died from uh, doing a very heroic deed for the island's people, I suppose. So she's uh, very much like the daughter of everyone on the island or the, the few characters that they portray on the island. So um, when she's dumped by um, an athlete and um, for, for a much hotter girl, um, she decides to go off and get revenge by challenging to this hot girl uh, some kind of swimming competition. Um, and Alex Fong, who is a celebrity swimmer, I guess, which makes us not much of a stretch for Alex Fong, um, puts on a show kind of publicly uh, saying that he'll help her. But um, what, she, what Jillian didn't know was that the, this Alex Fong character was just putting on a show. So he, she eventually uh, kidnaps him to Chen Chao and forces him to help her and her friends win the competition. Um, and it's perfectly fine because the, the, the townspeople, the islands people, um, they, they help her, they help uh, Jillian by keeping Alex around any ways necessary. And then eventually just kind of gives up trying to leave and um, helps her. Um, that's, you know, that's kind of the basic uh, summary of the plot. Um, but the, the film, the script itself is so sloppily written and so sloppily put together that, um, you know, 
you realize that the Alex Wong character doesn't really help the Jillian uh, character swim at all. Uh, maybe only one scene. And, uh, and, but nevertheless, uh, you know, it's Jeff Lau and it's Mole Tao humor. And it's, um, it's very humorous. Um, it's kind of amusing. At least, at least some of the gags uh, do, are more successful than the ones, say, in Flirting Scholar 2, which uh, goes to prove, you know, um, film, film criticism does work when you, when you put it in relative terms. Um, I like how uh, Jeff Lau treated Chen Chao as kind of like uh, a film that takes place in an American small town where everybody knows each other. Um, according to what our mutual friend says, Chen Chao is nothing like um, the way it's portrayed in the film. But yeah, I kind of like the way they portray, they, they give this small town treatment. Um, I thought it's, it's fairly charming. It's something that's kind of rare in Hong Kong cinema. And I don't have to really like all the characters. I don't really have to feel for specific characters, but I just kind of like that interplay or that kind of environment. Um, and one of the kind of oddball characters uh, played by Stephen Fung, uh, I thought he was a lot of fun to watch. He, he kind of plays this um, crazy character who imagines things and 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 um, does a lot of you know strange things. And of course, in the trailer, you see him in the blonde wig, and he's easily the highlight of the film. Everyone else is kind of there. Um, Jillian is all right. Uh, Alex Fong, you know, is Alex Fong. Um, and then until, and it's okay until it hits the ending. And um, we'll talk about more of the ending when, when Paul gets to it. But um, three letters, WTF. So um, also uh, with the romance, this being a romantic comedy, you know, Jeff Lau is going to try and put his uh, kind of philosophical um, view on romance, just like he did with the Chinese Odyssey movies. And that that was Actually, in the Chinese Odyssey movies, the, the most treasured thing uh, amongst mainland Chinese fans is not only Stephen Chow's humor, but also that kind of um, deep romantic worldview that Jeff Lau has. And that's something he's tried to do uh, in the last few comedies. Um, it didn't work um, in Kung Fu Cyborg, and it doesn't work here again. And it didn't work in just another Pandora's box. It, it really stops to work anymore and it doesn't really balance with the comedy anymore and they're not really even all that insightful anymore so um fantastic water babes a film that i hope at least make back the money they used to make the print because it really felt like they just dumped it yeah this was a this is a film that I, I wasn't sure what to make of um i i tend to like some of jeff lau's stuff um you know i really liked just another Pandora's box, which was earlier this year, which I don't think we got a chance to talk about on the show. And I'm waiting for the the DVD release. Has that been released yet? Um, sorry, which movie again? Just another Pandora's box. It's out. It's definitely it is out. It? Yeah. See, I've got to pick that up so we can talk about it. Um, I because I really enjoyed that film. This one though, uh, it was just you know, eh, eh, you know, eh, I I understand that they're trying to get jillian to do a comeback and that you know she's facing an uphill battle because of the, the whole photo scandal and i think we've talked a little bit about before you know my opinion is that she did nothing wrong and she did not deserve the ostrac ostracization that she was given um you know in by the local audiences and whatnot so 
and I tend to like her in, in stuff that she does. So I'm, you know, I, I'm anxious for her to make a return and, and do films again. I wasn't uh, talking about this, though. I mean, this is a really bad film, unfortunately. <laughs> and, you know, the film does try to emphasize Chang Chao a little bit, but it, I think it ultimately fails. It doesn't, it never gave me the sense that this was really in Chung Chow, it wasn't, you know, highlighting landmarks of any kind. It was just these couple of people you know, who they had as actors. Um, then their basic role was to keep Alex Fong stuck on the island. Um, Stephen Fong, I, you know, he, he was the sort of the high point of the film for me. He had some fun moments, but he didn't have nearly enough screen time. Um, Simon Lui had a cameo. Yeah, I haven't seen him in in quite a while. Um, I would have liked to, for him to have more screen time too. And I guess the main reason I didn't really like this film is because everybody was pretty much mean-spirited. Um, Jillian, that is the main character, you know, her whole thing is she's out for revenge. And, you know, that's all she really cares about. And she's, you know, willing to kidnap a guy in, in order to see her plan of revenge out. Um, she's got a little posse you know, of, of these three girlfriends who help her out and then everybody who's helping her keep, you know, him trapped on the island, Alex Fong's character trapped on the island. And at the same time, Alex Fong's kind of a jerk. You know, he's pompous and, you know, he says stuff when the cameras are on that he doesn't mean to, to look like a nice guy. And it's just one of those films where you don't really care about anybody. And because the plot is you know based in this negative idea of vengeance or revenge it's just hard to hard to sort of keep up with it um but then you know it goes through and and like you said there's no real swimming here you know the the, mm -hmm. the whole thing is supposed to be he's supposed to be training her to win in this swimming competition that's going to be like a month away which she has no chance of doing um and, and yet there's no actual training that goes on and so the, the competition ultimately shows up, and then there's this big, you know, WTH or WTF moment when things just go wacky. I mean, we're talking LSD, you know, Timothy, Timothy Leary wacky. <laughs> um, it just goes nuts, and there's all this CG happening, and you don't know is what you're seeing magic, or is it a dream sequence, or, or just what's going on. And then there's this moment in the middle of all this when it suddenly becomes like this environmental message and you're like, what is going on? And it, it was probably the best point of the film because we were, I mean, I was laughing so hard just because of the ridiculousness of everything and, and the fact that it seemed to have no, no place in the context of the movie whatsoever. It was like somebody just came in and threw a completely different film ending onto this film. And it, it was it was actually kind of fun and actually kind of funny because it was so bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's I, I wouldn't recommend this film I, 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 to anybody to see in the theater. I don't think I'd recommend them to see it on video unless they could do it for free. Um, I certainly don't think I could ask anybody to go out and buy it. Um, so you didn't like the Chen Chow stuff. I, I haven't been to Chen Chow for I don't know a decade and a half, but I don't even see it as you know whether you have to be from Chen Chow or not to really care to see what it's trying to do. I think what it's trying to do is 
the whole see, small the, town thing. I mean, thing. they, but I don't know. It, they, it didn't really come across to me that well. It was just they had like this handful of quirky characters, and I mean, it. A lot of times, what Hong Kong cinema tries to do to put this in sort of a Western frame of reference is the the small islanders, people who are on Chung Chow or some of the other smaller islands um, that you have to take a ferry to get to these they're they're kind of given this backwater identity you know so mm. it's it's they're, I, they're not really rednecks per se but you would equate them as if you have a movie in the west that's got the big city boy and the redneck you know that that's kind of how they differentiate sometimes some of the islanders here in in so alex fong is like the big city kid and he's stuck on this island with a bunch of, you know, backwater islanders um, who are there basically to protect their, you know, adopted daughter, Jillian. And that's fine. It's just, it just seemed kind of, you know, overdone. And I wasn't really interested. The, the characters were very stereotypical. They weren't, weren't all that interesting. Um, and again, there are just films that have approached these subjects in more entertaining ways. I mean, if you want to see a film that's about swimming, it's actually got more swimming in it than this film. Um, it's not a serious film. It's a comedy, and it's pretty funny. Um, the Sammy film, the Sammy and Suyu's first film, I think it's their first film, um, United We Stand and Swim, is not a great film, but it's entertaining, and it's pretty coherent to follow. Um, a better overall Chung Chow movie is uh, Riley Ip's Just One Look. I mean, th that's one of my favorite films uh, of of all time for Hong Kong cinema. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's one that I think really captures the sense of living on the island and sort of being disassociated from Hong Kong Island or Kowloon and what's like, what it was like growing up there and some of the different groups of people that you had and some of the dreams that kids had. For me, that was a film that really better highlighted uh, that what, what you might consider the island experience or the Chung Chow experience a lot more so than than this film. This film just sort of broke apart into, I don't know, very stereotypical moments and characters and then moments of just utter absurdity. Um, so I can't I can't really, you know, give this a recommendation, although I do want to see, you know, Jillian return to form. Um, and, and, you know, she was in Just One Look both her and Charlene, and I thought that the performances they gave there, even though they weren't in the lead, um, were, were com very commendable. So, yeah, I don't know. Somewhere beyond the sea Somewhere waiting for me my lover stands on golden sands And watches the ships that go sailing Somewhere beyond the sea She's there watching for me Well, it's time to move on and talk about our West Screen films for this week. Um, up first, the third of the trilogy of Pixar animated films uh, for Toy Story, and that is Toy Story 3. So this is a bit of a surprise for some people. Uh, not a lot of people were expecting another Toy Story film. 
Pixar is sort of on record as stipulating that they don't really like doing sequels, but I guess, you know, the pressure to produce and to have, you know, revenue uh, from producers and, and other people in, you know, in that industry with them who are financing some of the films have prompted them to come out with some sequels. I think there's a Cars 2 sequel that's in the works now. And from what I've read in other places, a lot of people at Pixar aren't very happy about it, but, you know, they're doing it because it's it's a cash cow kind of an, kind of an issue. Um, I, to me, that kind of starts to symbol uh, where creativity and, and good ideas may start to uh, take a back seat, and it might, it might signal a decline for Pixar. This was certainly true when Disney started pumping out a lot of sequels and direct-to-video stuff, um, like The Little Mermaid 2, and, you know, the, the Lion King 4, and, and all these, you know, sequels that were being done on the cheap just to try and cash in on the titles that had done very well um, in the cinema. I'm hoping Pixar doesn't ultimately follow that that same track, but um, it's, a lot of times history seems to repeat itself. But Toy Story 3 um, is here before us as a sequel, the third of the uh, original first, from the original first Toy Story, which was their first theatrical release, which um, I recall seeing in this minute just being having my socks knocked off. Um, being very skept skeptical if a 3D animated film could actually be feature length and actually hold, you know, people's attention, particularly adults' attention, because it was a very untested and untried type of medium uh, for cinemas, especially outside of things like, you know, video games and the occasional short special effects scene. Uh, and I think a lot of people were very surprised. I was very surprised. Um, some years later, we got the sequel, Toy Story 2, and the characters had been, you know, sort of fully developed, and they evolved even further. And so here we are, sort of the cap to the overall story, bringing it to a close. And we've got all the characters back, characters that are very familiar and recognizable. Um, nearly all of the voice actors return to voice their characters. I think the one that's missing is um, Jim Varney, who was Slinky. Uh, he passed away some years ago. Uh, I'm not sure who's doing his voice now, but whoever they got sounds very similar. So that character is still very solid. The film itself is a very strong conclusion to the series. Um, it It's progressed to a certain point to where they have to address the issue of the main uh, owner, Andy, growing up. And then what happens with his toys when he no longer wants to play with them. Um, the best part of this film for me was is the opening sequence. The opening sequence is this um, very action-oriented, Hollywood-esque type of uh, sequence. It's a train chase um, with Woody trying to stop the train and some of the other toys uh, pulling off a heist. And it's all done in this sort of very high, high fantasy, high action style that's just amazing. And this is ultimately simply the play imagination of a very young Andy. Um, for me, that was probably my favorite part of the film. Um, beyond that, uh, I think the story does tend to get a bit redundant. So basically, you've got um, issues that happen, you know, that we've seen before. There's a split between Woody and Buzz. 
um, which we've seen before. There's problems with Buzz from a technical sense. Uh, eventually, the toys are trying to get back to Andy. Um, I don't want to go too much into the story to give away too many spoilers, um, but a lot of these same type of plot hooks, same type of issues we, we've seen in the earlier ones. So it does get a little bit redundant. Um, but I think these minor issues are overlooked primarily because of the love that people have for these characters. Um, you know, it's if you've liked Toy Story 1 and Toy Story 2, you're going to like this film equally, equally as well. I've talked to some people who've said that it's their, for them, this film is their favorite of all three. Um, I've talked to others who feel it's, you know, uh, better than two, not quite as good as the original. Uh, I think that if you like these characters in general, though, you're going to be very happy with this film. Um, we do have a couple new characters that are introduced via, and you can see these on the trailer, and that is uh, the characters of Barbie and Ken, and they tend to steal the spotlight a little bit here, which I think is interesting because the the, the original core group of toys um, are not toys that really exist in reality from a commercial aspect. They were all created specifically for uh, Toy Story, with the exception of the potato heads. Um, but here we've got Barbie and Ken who are, you know, Barbie's a very um, global sort of commercial license. So the fact that these characters... Um, take such a primary role in the story I found a little bit interesting in, 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 the, in the fact that they have that commercial identity tied with them. But that's one of the things that they're sort of making fun of and playing with too. So it, it works kind of well. Um, we also see quite a few classic toys that are very nostalgic, at least for me. Um, I think some of these toys were already probably outdated when Kevin was born. Um, <laughs> but you've got things like the rolling popcorn popper, um, the, the rolling phone, um, the CNSA, all of these things are very, very nostalgic. So there's a lot here for adults um, who, and anybody who's ever, you know, been a toy collector or somebody who's had, who's had a lot of toys. The ending, and again, I won't give away any spoilers here, but the ending I think could have ended differently. Um, and I've, t I've heard a couple other people on some other movie podcasts talking, I think the guys over on the uh, the Movielicious podcast, I think one of the members was saying that they think that this could have ended in a different way, and they didn't say what that way was, but I think that the way I thought it should have ended, I was probably thinking exactly the same uh, way that they were thinking. And I don't want to share that here because, you know, that will be a bit of a spoiler. But I did have a different, different expectation. Not that the way that they ended this was bad. I think it works, um, works very well. Could have gone a different way, though. I think it might have been a little, little bit more interesting. Um, the last thing I want to say is that, you know, Pixar is known for doing uh, short animations before their features. And they have a short animation before this one called Day and Night, which is just amazing. It's a mixture of both traditional 2D animation and 3D animation. And it's, it's very much like the, if you saw Up... Um, uh, what was the one they had on Up? It was about the clouds. I can't remember the name of it now. Um, but the short that it was they a cloud with the bad mood cloud. Yeah, and yeah. That. And they were they you know they would they were making like little things, and the stork would have to deliver those things. And the one stork always got the the the, the rain cloud was always making things like baby alligators and porcupines and and stuff, and he would always get hurt. 
Um, but that was, I really, you know, I thought, oh, that, that was really a, a great one. And, uh, I was thinking, how are they going to top that? And then I saw this one and I was like, well, they did it again. Um, and I tend to get a lot more excited many times about the Pixar shorts than the actual features. Um, so I really love the day and night cartoon short at the beginning. Um, and this one, much like that one had almost no dialogue, um, in it. It's all done through visual and audio cues to tell sort of the the idea of what's going on and it works really really well and then to me that's that's sort of the highest form of storytelling when you can get away from simply stating stuff outright and you can generate emotion and you can generate feeling with visual and audio cues so i really love that um so kevin what what about you what were your thoughts on toy story 3 um, I saw the the first Toy Story film, um, I believe, in 1995. I was 11 years old at the time. So to me, to, to watch, it's almost like you're growing up with not only the characters, uh, toys. You're also growing up with Andy. And and I, I, I kind of a few years ago went through the similar growth. Um, so it, it works on a, a totally different level for me. Just kind of like um, it makes me finally feel like an adult. Uh, I guess that's that's what to me uh, the film is like. But first of all, the the short that you're talking about, day and night, um, I also liked it a lot. Um, I think it's a very good mix of um, analog 2D animation and 3D digital animation. Uh, also, also a good mix of using the 2D and the the 3D um, viewing format. But um, in short, yes, I really like that as well. But more about the 3D later. Um, for me, it's you know the the writers of Pixar and and to defend the the use of sequels here, um, both two and three, uh, two I think was made when um, when uh, it was going to be a straight to video release, and Pixar decided to kind of rescue it from that and made made a proper film out of it. And um, again for the third film, it was when uh, I think Disney owned the property, and it was right before um, it was just right after the Disney and Pixar split, and since Disney owned the property. They were going to do their own version, and it was going to be an episodic, straight-to-video style story. But again, Pixar kind of rescued it from the hands of Disney. Before they could make it, they decided to make it better. So um, I could understand why these two films were made, and I'm very, very thankful that Pixar got their hands on it before Disney did. Um, because the writers of Pixar, they never really cease to surprise me. I, I just finished watching the, the first two films again recently, and... Um, they have this pattern of never going or finishing a, an adventure the way you might you might predict it. They always come. They they keep things very fresh, um, and they keep things very exciting. Um, and you know, I had a lot of fun with this film, Toy Story. Um, it's it's really much another Toy Story adventure. And I, um, even though it's redundant, but you know that these certain things are going to happen, like you were mentioning, uh, something about Buzz. Um, the Woody and Buzz character go through some kind of split, and the whole thing about Andy—that's three traditional. That's the traditions of the Toy Story series. But for me, this is more like a film for adults. Um, the beginning—I'm uh, going to share a little bit more of the plot. That be, uh, it begins with uh, Andy about to go to college, and these—it starts with these toys who have been stuck in a toy box for you know, years, and they're still trying to, desperately trying to get Andy to play with them, and they can't. And to me, that's that's a really brave way for Pixar to go. It's, it starts off really depressing. Um, and, and you know, these, these, these 
you know, love loved characters um, going through the this this situation is very um, story. It started off on a really sad note, and um, and the way it kept going and going, and it just keeps putting these characters in in worse and worse situations. It's really a film with issues that only adults can really deal with. I think for kids, um, it's too depressing. They, I don't think they're at the maturity or the age to really to understand the situation. Um, for the kids, you know, I'm sure they'll see the cute toys and the adventure is fun, but I think there's really more of a film, like Up, there's really more of a film for adults. Um, with that said, again, it's a fine adventure film. Uh, the villain might be a little scary for kids, um, but, um, you know, I heard some gasp and I heard, you know, some kids screaming at certain moments or they're scared of certain moments, but, you know, that's what really a fine adventure film is about. There are going to be a, a certain dark aspects of it, um, but for me, the ending—I I really like the ending. Um, I thought it's a perfect end to the series. Um, I don't know how it could have ended differently. I'm not sure if you're meaning, you know, going for more a darker ending. Uh, no, I no, hope no, not. No, no. no I'll, 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 I'll explain to you once once we wrap up. Okay, and, and, I, and I think you'll, I think you'll. Once I once I explain how I would have envisioned it, I think you'll agree that it could have worked as well. Okay, thank God it's not the, the dark ending. No. <laughs> um, Although no, I, but... I do want to say I do want to say at, at the at the sort of big climax, um, the the way that the things get resolved, it, it really kind of ties back to, uh, you know, the sort first. yeah to the first one. I loved that. I mean, right. I, th- that that was a, that was another high point for me, um, that they that they went, you know, that way. But yeah. again, I don't want to spoil that for people who haven't seen it. Okay, um, again, you know, for me who grew up with the film, the way that the ending is carried, um, you know, I I was quite touched, um, and maybe because I I just watched the films and the, these memories fresh in my mind and. Um, and and you know just being a similar age to the Andy character and seeing what he's going through or, or what he does at the end um, or what happens to these toys at the end. Um, for it is like a growing process again. It, I was gonna tweet that the film made me feel like an adult, and for the first time felt sad about being an adult. You know, you see the goodbye to these characters, and I think it's it's it ends the this trilogy, and I hope and I hope. Hope really badly that they don't make a fourth movie because right now, where it ends is perfect. They don't need to go any further. Um, it's the perfect end. And, and the way the Pixar carried it here is that they treat it as the end of this entire story. Yeah. And uh, I like that very much, and I'm fine with that. And I hope they don't make a fourth film. As for the 3D, um, I was going to go out all the way to near the airport to watch this film in 2D because. Um, Intercontinental slash Disney did not give us a choice. Um, the film was on 106 screens all over Hong Kong this past weekend, yet only two screens played the 2D English version. And one of them cost approximately 20 US dollars to get in because uh, it's one of those, you know, um, uh, palace film deals. So I was about to have to go out to the airport, which is about 45 minutes away from the city, to watch this film in 2D. And I am very mad about that. Yeah. The 3D, I have to pay extra for 3D. 
I don't care about having to keep the 3D glasses. I don't want these 3D glasses because I don't want 3D movies anymore. The 3D was a non-effect. It made my eyes tired. It made the screen darker. It made me pay more money, and it didn't do anything for the storytelling. Um, it doesn't make sense to force people to watch 3D. Okay, if you want people to watch 3D movie, you offer them screens. That's fine with me. Just don't make me having to go out of my way to the edge of the city to watch it. Please end this force 3D thing. I can understand that theater wants to make money out of this because it's the distributors who are making money out of this inflated ticket price. But I'm ask, I'm begging, I'm begging Disney, I'm begging Intercontinental Video. I'm begging the distributors of, of, of all 3D films, please do stop shoving it down our throats. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely gotten out of hand. And now the the cinemas are asking you to keep your glasses rather than return them into a bin. I guess they're tired, tired of having to deal with the recycling of them. Um, and, you know, it's just... Yeah, because uh, I, I saw it originally in the States, um, and I saw it here in Hong Kong, and had I had the choice, I would have just gone to see the 2D version, because, you know, the 3D here is not really used to any great effect, um, mm -hmm. and I think watching it on a big screen in 2D would have been fine. Um, I, I did end up going to an early show, which was half price, um, so I was able to, to defer some of the in, increased ticket price a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's, there were, there was no option and that was kind of lame that they didn't, we didn't have an option to see uh, a standard version. Is there more of a choice in the States? Because I believe, um, the, the ratio of 2D and 3D. Yeah, typically, screens. I mean, typically you'll have, um, a cinema showing both a 2D and a 3D version. Some, I mean, some of the bigger multiplexes, you know, they've got so much cinema space that a lot of times they can't keep stuff running in every theater so when they get something like this and they can have two versions you know that that's fine for them here as i understand it it was just the english version that was having the problem right um, no um the cantonese well the cantonese version um played in certain theaters that weren't equipped with the um 3d equipment so i think the dynasty um and uh, the Senate art which is a fine theater but uh it's um not really the ideal Theater, but uh, yeah, because it, it, but those are yeah, happened to me in the middle of the city. Yeah. West screen film for this week is Twilight Eclipse. Now, Kevin hasn't watched this, so in part because he wants to keep his man card. Um, Not but, to be fair, I did watch the second film. <laughs> and the first and one. if you watched the second film, you pretty much saw the third film. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the third film. Um, and I have to say up front, and I probably said this before, I am not a Twihard um, I have not read any of the Twilight books. Uh, I don't really plan on reading the Twilight books. I'm not a fan of Stephanie Meyer's take on the universe per se. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of fantasy-ish, so uh, it, it's not a whole lot of 
effort to go out for two hours and watch the films. Um, so this is the third film in the series of four, um, or actually there's going to be five films, because the last film they're splitting in two, as they're doing with the last Harry Potter um, book. And this is the best of the series so far. Um, if you've seen the, the first Twilight and the second Twilight, this is really a lot more polished um, and a lot stronger than either of those two. But that being said, it's still not great. Um, it's still very repetitive. There's still way too much angst between uh, the love triangle characters of Bella, Edward, and Jacob. Um, I, I had hoped that a lot of that angst would have been resolved in the second film, but it seems to get, you know, re regurgitated and recycled here um, even further. Uh, I've never really cared for Meyer's spin on vampires. They're just too wacky for me. Um, it, 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 she basically throws out vampire lore altogether and just makes up her own things. Why she even bothers calling them vampires, I don't know, just because maybe she wants to... Uh, cash in on the the sexiness of the vampire mythology. She's basically created her own mythology. We talked about that before um, when we reviewed um, New Moon. The, I mean, here we've already talked about you know the fact that they're sparkly, the fact that they're you know constantly out mm -hmm. in the daytime. Um, you don't ever really see them drinking blood mm -hmm. in, in the films. Um, here we learn that newborn vampires are somehow infinitely stronger now than old vampires. And the whole plot of Eclipse is that um, the villain from the earlier films um, is basically creating a newborn army, an army of newborns, um, which she's going to lead to the, the area to try and take out um, Edward and his family and ultimately get to Bella. And that's basically the whole plot mixed in with a whole lot of angst and, um, you know, Bella swooning over Edward and Jacob frowning because Bella is swooning over Edward. Um, the film looks a bit rushed and cheap in places. And I've listened to some other podcasts um, talk about the, the, the time between the two films because we just had New Moon um, last last year november december time period and here we are less than six months later and you've got uh, this film the next of the last two films is slated for 2011 so at least we'll have a year before that next one comes out um hopefully they'll be able to do a little bit more development um but it i think it looks a bit a bit more a bit rushed um you do get a lot more wolves in terms of screen time, um, so there's some more special effects here. But it kind of, you know, again, like New Moon, it comes off like an episode of The Supernatural or something you'd see on the CW. It never has this sense of being a really, really truly epic blockbuster. Um, the threat never really seems all that threatening. Um, I, I never really felt that concerned about uh, any of the characters. Uh, major, any of the major characters. Um, a couple of the minor characters get some more exposure this time, so that's a good thing because the, you know, we're not always focused on Bella um, or Edward or Jacob, but there's still a whole lot of unresolved narrative. Um, you keep you keep going back to this idea 
of the love triangle and who's Bella choosing. Um, she said who she's choosing, but then, um, you know, it, it still goes back and forth. And as I understand it, in the books, there was supposed to be a wedding um, in this in this edition, um, and that doesn't happen here. So that's a bit of a spoiler. Um, they said that they've pushed that to the next one. So basically what we get with all this angst and, you know, a couple of fight scenes in between is a lot of what we got in New Moon. So it's it's just a little bit too repetitive. Um, but again, film's doing very, very well. So I know that I'm not amongst the target demographic for uh, who's being asked to go and see this film. I think that if you're out there and you've got a girlfriend or a daughter who's sort of hot on the series and you want to take them out to go, it, it will be more entertaining than the other two films to date if you've seen them, um, but you might not be able to get past a lot of the repetition uh, that this that you, you have in this film that's in the other films. Um, but the werewolves are cool. Go team Jacob. I have a question, Paul. Yeah. Does Jacob look like Edison Chen again? Does uh, he do that, 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 that? You know that he had that crooked smile in the second film. That yeah, I mean that it's 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 kind of it's kind of more the same. Um, Smirky. The, you know they yeah. do they do play with some things here, and it's been said elsewhere. There's a line where Edward walks up and to Jacob, and he says, "Doesn't this guy own a shirt?" You know. <laughs> um, so I think the filmmakers do kind of know um how the film is viewed by those people outside of the demographic and so they do throw in some of that here it just seems like you're waiting for something to happen with these characters you're waiting for you keep waiting for them to take the next step you've been waiting for them to take the next step since the first film and it's still just a lot of gazing dreamily into each other's eyes and Oh wait, here's Jacob. Jacob, you know, is kind of getting in, in 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 making things a mess and then dreaming into each other's eyes again and you know, it's like, okay, get on with it already. I I you know, it's it's kind of like I think if you take excerpts from the first, second and third movie, you could make one movie and it's still going <laughs> to look the same, you know. Um so yeah, I hopefully if this trend continues uh, as at least from my perspective it has so far, um, the last two films will continue to get better and they'll be a lot more enjoyable. And so hopefully there'll be a, you know, a big payoff towards the end. Um, I've, I've come across spoilers of ultimately what happens, um, accidentally, not, not that I went looking. Um, so I kind of know, you know, what's in store, how they pull that off, how they, how they do things, how they explain things, um, Hopefully they'll do it in an entertaining manner that sort of continues this trend. Go Team Network. <laughs> You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. All right. Uh, that's going to wrap up our film discussion for this week. Um, we do want to Got a couple comments over on the site we'll talk about before we close off things. And our first comment was from commenter Teen Lun, 
who I think back in our Blu-ray special too, he left it. And he said, yeah, he too had bought the Storm Warriors on Blu-ray disc when it first came out. Um, he says he was a little disappointed in the special features. And he says, you can watch the exact same documentary on the film's official website. And so I'm assuming that's a special feature on the disc. Um, I don't have the disc yet, so Kevin, maybe you can comment on that. Uh, he says, I was kind of expecting material that wasn't on its official site. And did I mention the special features um, were in blurry standard definition? Um, and this is something that I've noticed, too, when we talked about Future X Cops. Um, the Blu-ray for that, the special features looked terrible. I mean, it was like it was the trailer that they used to run on Roadshow and some of the TV stations. And it wasn't they didn't bother to modify it or upscale it or anything. It just looked terrible. Um, on the Blu-ray disc, and I was really surprised to hear his comments on Storm Warriors because you would think with a film like that, with a title like Storm Warriors, and you've got you know this earlier film Storm Riders, and you've got comic books, and you know you've got you know dolls and figures for this series. I mean, this in many ways this series is kind of like a Star Wars of um, Hong Kong. And there's so much that they could do with Blu-ray, you know, integrating in um, in some special features and having some things pop up at certain sequences. And it just seems like nobody's really approaching and using the technology um, as it could be and should be used. What do you think, um, Kevin? My response is that, I mean, I hate to give uh, a half-assed response or whatever, but it's just the fact that no, not enough people buy Hong Kong video to for these makers to justify making a lot of exclusive content for video. Um, yeah, but don't you been... think? I mean, don't you think it's they're kind of cheating us? I mean, in some cases, you know, you look at a Blu-ray disc like Future X Cops, and it's going to be ten dollars, ten Hong Kong dollars more than the DVD, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But then you get a disc like Storm Warriors, and that's considerably more expensive than, mm -hmm. you know, the DVD. And if all they're doing is taking the exact same special features that are on the DVD and throwing them that throwing them on in standard resolution, they're not putting a whole lot more work into it for what they're charging for it, really. Well, it's because they don't really make... Well, one, um, Storm Warriors flopped in the box office. Um, it hasn't made money yet for Universe, and I think they just didn't deem it important enough to to throw more money. I, I don't think it's right. No, I don't think it's right at all. Um, you know, um, a lot of uh, overseas Blu-ray or DVD, they, they do throw in a lot of special features in, uh, a lot of never-before-seen special features in, and yet they never subtitle them. And that's the same situation in Hong Kong. Um you know, and all I can and I can't really defend what they do. All I can say is there's no money in making extra special features, and that's it's kind of a perpetual. It's kind of like a self-perpetuating cycle. You don't buy the disc, they don't provide the content. They don't provide the content, you don't buy the disc, and you don't know who's who has to give in first. Yeah, who has to throw in that extra money to make the content? Who has to throw in the extra money first to 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 break the cycle? Uh, and this is actually one. Of the reason reasons why I, I really like Pahu Chan movies on video because even on Love in the Puff, which is kind of um, which doesn't really have that many special features, but it 
comes with an audio commentary. I think uh, Pang Chern is one of the very, very few directors in Hong Kong cinema that actually does, actually takes the time to do audio commentary on his movies. And um, even on a film like Love in a Puff, which hasn't uh, made his money back yet either, he's still putting the effort to one, put in deleted scenes, uh, stuff that has never been shown, uh, and also a brand new audio commentary. Um, so I'm not saying it's right, but honestly, Hong Kong Video has never excelled in producing uh, special content for his films. And um, I don't see Blu-ray being this this new new um opportunity for them it's just for people i mean i mean and even even um video buyers in hong kong know that they're just buying for the, f- the films for the films now they don't really watch the special features just because you know they know they're not going to produce anything special all right another comment uh actually not really a comment just a little bit of a of a interaction news um uh sometimes commenter and uh li- and i guess show listener uh, David Harris was here in Hong Kong last week. We got to meet up with him, and we dragged him along to watch the fantastic Water Babes, and we do apologize for that, David. <laughs> and uh, he apparently had a nice time. Uh, we got to have lunch together and chat about Hong Kong films, and I think he flew back yesterday. So we wish him a safe trip back to the UK and uh, hope that he can come back and visit soon. So that's going to wrap things up for our show this week. Uh, I think next week we'll be back to talk about um, Aftershock. I think you're going to be seeing that tomorrow, Kevin. That's right, yeah. uh, and, I, and I am prepared to bring uh, several packs of tissues. Yeah, I've heard that's the, the bit of the tearjerker. And we're also going to be, I'm hoping to be seeing Angelina Jolie's Salt over the weekend, so we should be able to talk about both of those films next week. And whatever news of interest pops up between now and then. Uh, also on the horizon, we've got uh, Inception and The Sorcerer's Apprentice at some point. So if you'd like to follow along with what we're doing, you can always check in at the website over at www.concast.com. You can leave comments. Um, you can listen to old shows. You can find links to iTunes and some of the other sites that we um, like to listen to or get news from. Uh, if you'd like to be a part of the show, you can, um, again, write in comments. We'll, we'll discuss them here. Or you can send us an audio file, a short MP3, and we'll play your comments or questions here on the show. Um, if you'd like to follow along with us on Twitter, um, you can follow my Twitter account through the website. Or you can follow the much more interesting exploits of the man known as the Golden Rock. How can they do that, Mr. Ma? Um, that man who uh, is not me, uh, or is an alternate version of me, is on uh, www.twitter.com slash the Golden Rock in one word. Um, that's the Golden Rock. The. Remember the the. Yeah, the Golden Rock. And you're also doing quite a bit of writing these days. Uh, you've got a blog. Um, any any place else you'd like to direct listeners to if they want to see what you're working on in terms of some of your writing? Sure. Um, I continue to write reviews for uh, YP Movies. Um, now with a much easier URL is www.ypmovies.com.hk. I will be reviewing Salt this week. And I uh, also uh, write for um, YesAsia.com. Uh, sometimes you see me in the Yumcha section. 
um, writing editor's picks and entertainment news under the uh, nickname Rockman. Um, and also, you know, a lot more product descriptions that you probably won't be able to tell is my writing. All right. That's awesome. So that'll wrap up our show for this week. And we'll be back next time to talk about more stuff. So until then, we will wish you good viewing and we'll see you then. See you next time, everybody. Oh, 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 you know how Inception ends. I don't know how Inception ends. Leonardo DiCaprio beats the arrogant British boxer and saves the pride of Chinese people. Oh, really? Yes. What does Mr. Twister have to say about that? It looked like dancing. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.